0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: This week on Science for the People, I'm finding out how news agencies try to get at the truth by checking the facts. I'll be talking with Brooke Borrell about her new book, The Chicago Guide to Fact-Checking. I'll also be speaking with Michelle Siraca, who has checked facts for Malcolm Gladwell, Radiolab, and Vanity Fair— and Dave Levitan, who takes us through how you check the science coming out of the mouths of certain political candidates. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. I want to start today with a question for you all. How do you know that what you are reading is true? If you're like me, you consume many, many news articles every day from news sites, online magazines, your Facebook feed, and possibly even an actual physical newspaper. How do you know that the articles you're reading contain the truth? If you're lucky, the article you're reading saw a fact checker before it ever saw you. In many cases, however, it probably didn't. What is a fact checker? To answer that question and many, many more, I'm here with Brooke Burrell. She's a science journalist who has written for The Guardian, The Atlantic, and BuzzFeed News, among others. She's a contributing editor to Popular Science, and is the author of Infested, How the Bedbug Infiltrated Our Bedrooms and Took Over the World. She is also a veteran fact checker, and author of the new book, The Chicago Guide to Fact Checking. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with the most basic question. What is fact checking?
2: (laughs) It's a good question. I mean, very generally, it's, of course, checking a statement that someone has made or written and making sure it's accurate based on whatever data or other source material, hopefully primary source material you can find. Um, The kind of fact-checking that's in the news a lot right now and what you hear about, especially in reference to the election, is one specific kind of fact-checking, which is more political fact-checking. That's when you have journalists or outlets like PolitiFact or factcheck.org double-checking what politicians are saying in speeches or debates and that sort of thing. Um, What my book is about and what we're going to talk a little bit more about is more editorial fact-checking, which is something that takes place before uh, a piece of journalism hopefully sees an audience. And usually it's something that happens in the magazine world, although there are some areas of media that it's um, sort of gaining a foothold. And it's really a fact checker is a third party, someone who's not involved in producing the story, not the journalist, not the editor or editors, um, or if it's a radio show, for example, not the producers, but someone who is a third party who doesn't maybe have, has a little bit of distance from the story and doesn't necessarily have as much invested in it in the same way. Uh, And hopefully they're getting all of the source materials from the journalist Um, They're sort of checking those sources to make sure that they're good sources and finding better ones if they're not. Um, Sometimes in my career, I certainly have gotten Wikipedia links for for a source from a journalist, which is not exactly the best source. And then they're also sort of taking the story apart and just double checking every sentence, every number, and also just trying to get a sense of whether all of those facts uh, individually are um, faithfully making a a true story uh, out out of them. So... That's the process. Um, it doesn't happen as much as maybe it should, but that, that's, that's fact checking.
1: And you mentioned that this is more common in some types of media than in others. What kind of places would definitely have a fact checker? And what kind of media outlets would definitely not have <sighs> a fact checker?
2: Well, definitely. Is a little bit hard to say, but it's more common in magazines. sort So you're, you know, like glossy magazines, national magazines, sometimes local magazines. Um, that's where the tradition is sort of built up. And part of the reason for that is that at least before the internet, uh, magazines were much harder to get a correction in. So you would get a magazine and maybe there would be a mistake. Maybe a reader would write in and write to the editors and they would have to double check to make sure that the reader was actually correct and then it could take maybe a month or two to get that correction in another issue of the magazine uh so when it comes to things like magazines usually but not always it depends on budgets and other things there will be a fact checker Uh, when it comes to the type of news or writing that is a little bit more fast-paced uh newspapers uh and now of course internet um daily news shows that sort of thing there isn't really time to give everything over to a third party to double check it Uh, So usually it's up to the reporter to make sure it's right the first time around. But if they're wrong, it's much easier to run a correction more quickly. Even before the Internet, when we're talking newspapers, for example, you would have, you know, an afternoon edition or the next morning's edition of the paper where they could run a correction. So it was a little bit easier to correct the, the record than with something like a magazine um, as far as other places that might not have fact checking, usually it's, so that all kind of, you would think that books of all things, which are even more permanent would have fact checkers and most nonfiction books don't, aren't necessarily fact check. The publishers usually don't pay for it. It's usually up to the author to either hire someone or do it themselves. So that's another area where you would think that there'd be fact checking, but there's usually not.
1: I was actually pretty surprised by that, especially When I was younger, I used to really think that books were kind of the arbiters of truth. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes not. But as you mentioned, a lot of glossy magazines um, involve fact checkers. This is basically a journalism setting. Where do people get training to become a fact checker? Because in your book, it's, it's a pretty involved process.
2: It is. And that's such a good question. So For my book, so I didn't go to journalism school. Uh, I sort of learned on the job after falling into it uh, through through a long series of events. And that happens to a lot of journalists, actually, that, you know, kind of fall into this career rather than starting out trying to go through journalism school. But for the book, I I did do the survey uh, of 200 and some people. It's not a scientific survey, but it gives you a little bit of a glimpse into things. And I also interviewed 90 people. At various stages in journalism or fact-checking careers, and of the people that went to journalism school, uh, very very few of them learned how to fact-check in school. It's not, of course, they learned how to report, they learned how to source, but the actual you know steps that a fact-checker takes is a little bit different than that. It's sort of reporting in reverse. It's a little bit of a different mindset, and that process maybe they would hear it mentioned in class, but it's not something they learn. So most people that learn it. It's almost like an apprenticeship. If you happen to get an internship at a glossy magazine, for example, or if you um, happen to get a fact-checking job, because they do exist and often they are entry-level jobs in journalism, uh, that's when you, you learn. So usually different magazines will have their their own sort of fact-checking guide. They'll have someone who's in charge of that and they'll teach people the system that they prefer, what kind of sourcing they consider good sourcing. Um, so that that's actually part of the purpose of this book is to try and take that out of sort of these newsrooms that have this hodgepodge of ways of doing this and talking to a lot of people who have experience in it and pulling together all of those experiences into a guide that you can now use in your own office or your own newsroom or you know apply to your own work if you're a freelancer to a degree.
1: So I was really kind of surprised when I entered the world of journalism to find that these fact checking jobs are entry level. (laughs) They're, they're for, you know, not, not kids, but a lot of times people just out of college. Um, and it seems like, you know, checking the facts, facts would be kind of, I don't know, like a senior, senior thing. I don't know why I think that, but presumably, of course, writers do their best to get things right why is a fact checker important
2: um well even the best written you know even the best journalism you can make mistakes uh, i've had many of my pieces i've had the pleasure of working with fact checkers and they always find something sometimes it's just a little something that could be tweaked sometimes it's a big thing that i just misunderstood Uh, When you're putting together a story with an editor and you're going back and forth, you're really, of course, you're trying to make sure the story is true. That's an important part of, you know, getting a factual piece of journalism out there. But you're also, especially if you're writing some longer narrative thing, you're thinking about narrative structure, you're thinking about um, pacing, you're thinking about all these other aspects and sometimes through the editing process, too. Um, The editors might put something in uh, thinking it's correct when it's not, or they might put something in and just, you know, assume that the fact checker is going to take care of it, you know, and double check to make sure it's right. So it's a process. People that aren't in the world of journalism, especially something like the magazine world where people are putting together these long, complicated narratives, might not realize that how many people actually sometimes have their hands in that story and read it. There's different layers of editors. So a lot of there are a lot of opportunities to have mistakes get in. Uh, so that's why it's definitely important to have a fact checker or, you know, especially if you're doing these longer pieces, it can certainly help make sure everything's right. I will say, just to go back to your point about the entry level position, there are some fact checkers, of course, and heads of research that have been doing this for decades at various magazines um, who I interviewed for this book, but it is often an entry level job. And that actually gets into this really interesting dynamic where you might have an entry level, you know, person right out of journalism school or some other graduate school or even college, having to fact check the work of a famous writer and a very seasoned editor. And that can actually get into some tricky uh, sort of political, you know, it's it's difficult sometimes for that person to go to these well-known, famous people and say, hey, you got this wrong. So the book also kind of talks about that, how to navigate that in a way to help yourself be heard when you think something is wrong and how to approach the different people that you have to interact with in this job.
1: A couple of times now you've talked about fact-checking as kind of reporting in reverse, but I think a lot of listeners who maybe just consume media probably don't know how reporting works. (laughs) Can you kind of take me through how a fact checker would go through a piece and what
2: they would do? Sure. So it's a little different depending on what, you know, every magazine will have a little bit of a different system, but usually uh, the fact checker is getting an article that is near completion. Uh, So the journalist and the editor have gone back and forth, you know, to sort of figure out uh, what the final structure is going to be, how it's going to be in its near final form, then they, ideally, this doesn't always happen, but I, usually it's in a Word document or maybe a Google document, some sort of word processing thing um, where they can put in footnotes or annotations through comments. And ideally, the journalist will go through and highlight all the different sections and put what, where they found that information. So if it's an actual person, they'll put the contact information. If it's a snippet from an interview... They will put um, the, the, the transcript or if the transcript wasn't typed up, uh, meaning, you know, sort of a written record of an audio recording. Uh, they will send a timestamp for the actual audio recording and give the audio recording as well. So the backtracker can go to that point in the interview and listen to it and make sure it's right. They will, So they'll go through and annotate. They, you know, if it's a scientific study, they'll put the citation and hopefully also provide a PDF or whatever else. Um, They have of that study and they'll go through the entire story for every sentence or paragraph or whatever is appropriate and tell the fact checker where they got that information. This doesn't always happen, by the way. This is something that's like the ideal scenario, but it's sometimes it's not quite as um, thorough as the fact checker would like it to be. But then they hand it over to the fact checker and they're going through. um, First, they read the story just to get a sense of what the story is even about without worrying about the facts so much. If they have time, they might read some other stories on a similar topic, or you know, if it's a profile of a famous scientist, for example, they might read uh, other things that have been written about that scientist just to see how other people treated that subject. Um, Maybe the piece that they're fact-checking takes some provocative stance, or maybe it, you know, maybe there's something missing, and maybe it's incorrect by omission because these other stories all included it. So why didn't we include it? So. They don't always have time to do that part, but it's a helpful thing if they have time. Then they'll actually go through and different fact checkers have different systems here, but some really like different colors of uh, pens or highlighters and they'll go through and underline or highlight every single fact in the story, which usually means every word or almost every word. And then they'll go through and they'll they'll sort of organize it by where am I going to find this information? Okay, all of these things came from an interview with this person. So I'm going to pull that stuff out into a list of questions uh, because I want to talk to that person and double check everything. Um, they'll do that for all of the people that are interviewed and then maybe send an email them to them as setting up an interview. So sometimes these people that have been interviewed are going to be interviewed yet again, um, which also is a tricky area. Sometimes they aren't prepared for more interviews and more time uh, to be committed to the story. Then they'll go through as they're waiting to hear back from these people they want to talk to. They'll go through all of those scientific papers or audio files or anything else they have on hand and double check and listen to them or read them. If there's a scientific study that they don't really understand, they might try and call some other experts in that field to uh, see if they can uh, get a better sense of whether what's written is accurate. It's a really involved process and as they go through they'll go and tick off all, like maybe it's a check mark, maybe it's an X, they'll go through every single sentence or word or whatever and they'll check it off they might write in the margins if they found a different source that was better than what the journalist provided. If they find something that's wrong they put it on yet another list of things if they want to go back to the journalist and editor and say hey I found these things that might be wrong, do you have This is a source I use because of this reason, and they they sort of hash out what to change. So it's a really involved process for a long feature; it can take quite a long time.
1: Yeah, I. The more I read your book, the more I was astonished by how long (laughs) this probably takes.
2: Yeah, yeah, it does, and it, it, it varies. I mean, of course the the fact checkers are on a deadline just like the journalists are. I mean, especially if you're talking about putting together a print publication or even, you know, deadlines on the web. Sometimes there's a little bit more um, leeway on those, but it's still, it's all, doing all of this and sometimes a tight deadline. It can be a kind of a, a fun, but stressful job.
1: And as you've noted before, and you note a couple times in your book, almost every piece that is fact checked will have at least one thing wrong with it.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I can attest to this anecdotally. In my three years at Science News, I have had one piece of writing that came back completely clean from the fact checker. It had no notes. It was a 150-word piece. It was two weeks ago, and I'm still proud. (laughs)
2: <laughs> did it make you nervous though at all? so if I got something like that back, I would my first reaction would be like, "Yes, and then I think I would be like, "Oh no, <laughs> are they sure that they actually did this is like I must have gotten something wrong I flowing
1: to everybody in the yeah. cubicles, actually <laughs> nice, nice, um, but most pieces do have mistakes, inaccuracies. um what does this mean for? the writers, the editors, the producers, why are there always mistakes?
2: (laughs) Well, I think part of it is just because we're all human. Um, And although I mean, at this point, I think we can all I think most people do admit that journalism is not completely objective, because humans are not completely objective. Um, So sometimes it's a matter of I mean, different publications on different perspectives, different um, sometimes there might be a certain way that someone writes something that, you know, other people would say, Hey, that's not really what those source materials say, but they're, they're sort of forcing it into the perspective that their publication has, or that they have. Sometimes a writer or editor just really wants a story to work. Uh, and you know, you get into sort of a mindset where you are ignoring, the, the, some of the materials the fact checker might have come back with and saying no, 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 I know this is right. And th- that's where that seniority comes into that I was talking about earlier. Sometimes the fact checker will say, hey, I think this is wrong. And the editor and writer will be like, no, no, we have this other information and we trust it more. And maybe they shouldn't have. Uh, you know when you're, when you're putting together a really big piece like that, there's a lot of sort of emotional investment that goes into it. Um, Sometimes these are pieces that people have been working on for months or longer. So I think that that's part of it. I think part of it too, I mean, it's a deadline driven profession. Uh, So sometimes you might have read something over and over again and you just miss a, a small error. There are all kinds of reasons why an error could sneak in.
1: So speaking of people getting invested in the story... Sometimes things do really go awry. Uh, Many of us will remember the infamous, used to be famous, now is infamous, Rolling Stone story called A Rape on Campus about a girl's experiences of sexual assault at the University of Virginia. Can you take us through that story and what happened with it?
2: Yeah, that was a story about a woman uh, at this university campus who had, according to her and according to this Rolling Stone piece, been gang raped at a fraternity party Um, It made huge waves. I mean, it was all over social media. Everyone was talking about it. And it was really, it was highlighting this problem that is sort of happening in our society and happening on college campuses and so forth. But it was a very dramatic story. It was far more dramatic in a lot of ways than some of the other stories we've been hearing. And it just really struck a nerve. And then it it came out, um, some journalists started questioning it and the fraternity involved. And, uh, you know, people started pointing out, like, this doesn't quite ring true and what happened? and I, I should say that I did not. For my, I did mention this piece in my uh, book. Uh, I did not get a chance to. I didn't have access to the fact checker or the journalist to talk to them about this story. Um, so this is based on reading the story. Reading the uh, Columbia Journalism Review did a big report on it, interviewing all the people involved, and published a series of you know articles on this as well. So this is. Uh, coming from that, just to be clear to listeners that, you know, sometimes we do, we have to deal with the sources that are available to us. Um, but what happened was, uh, is that the, the reporter had relied on this woman, uh, this woman's story and hadn't gone and double checked some of the facts with other people. Um, for example, she recounted a conversation between the woman and the story and some of her friends, um, uh, but relied on that woman's, uh, word that that's what those people had said without going to them and saying, Hey, did you say this or, or, or interviewing them in some way that, that got the, you know, that, sort of pinpointed what was actually said in these conversations. So, uh, you know, there was, there's a lawsuit at this point, maybe more than one lawsuit. I actually have not followed up on that recently. There are, there's just a huge backlash against it. It was a big problem. Obviously it was also a problem for people that are actually victims of rape and sexual assault. Um, I, I shouldn't say that. Well, I don't know what actually happened to that woman. It sounds like maybe something did happen to her, but just not what was in the story. Um, But it's a lot of people have now pointed to that people that are skeptical of rape victims and pointed to that story and said, Hey, well, this, this woman made it up. So, you know, it does happen that people make it up. So it's had a really bad impact, I think, on that conversation, which is an important one.
3: And
1: part of the reason that this story kind of had so much impact and the backlash had so much impact was because, of course, it's available on the internet and everybody read it for free. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure how many of our listeners are aware of this, but the internet has been very hard on journalism. People – expect to read or listen to or watch everything for free with no ads, and with very little thought about how the writers, podcasters, video producers, and editors are making enough to keep the lights on. This has resulted in a loss of revenue and some pretty major layoffs at many journalism institutions, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, National Geographic. When it comes to layoffs and power structure, how essential is it to keep the fact checker?
2: I think it's very important. Um, but I think that, and I can't speak directly to how the internet and such has affected, for example, Rolling Stone and their fact checking process, uh, for that particular story. But in general, um, it's hard to find numbers on this, but in general, it seems that fact checking, even though it's very, it's vital, uh, when people are doing their budgets and they're looking at what else is vital, you know, they still need an art department. They still need writers and editors, uh, So often the fact checking is what gets sort of tightened. They'll just say, well, the writer it's the writer is responsible for getting it right. So maybe we don't need a fact checker. Um, I've heard that argument before, or I've also heard the argument, especially with, uh, with outlets that are online only. It's, you know, well, we have comments, people will comment and point out when we get things wrong and we can fix them very quickly. The internet sort of has a self-correcting feature uh, that makes it so we don't necessarily need a fact checker. And, I think that all of those arguments are misguided, but it also is, I mean, I've never had to, you know, run the numbers and figure out a budget for a publication. So I imagine it's really difficult to figure out what to cut and what to keep.
1: So how can readers tell? Is there a way for readers, listeners to tell that a piece has been fact-checked? Are there bylines that they should look for, attributions? Um, How can you tell?
2: That's a really good question, because usually the fact checker does not get a byline. I have seen some publications where they do that. And I think that that's really commendable. And I think that that should happen more. Um, But in general, I mean, there are some publications that are just known to have fact checkers. I mean, the New Yorker has a very famous, you know, fact checking department at this point. Um, Other magazines, for example, people that I interviewed in my book are from fact-checking departments from magazines like Vanity Fair or GQ or Popular Science or Vogue. Um, so usually the, the big glossy magazines will have a fact-checker. It's not always true, but usually. Um, as far as being able to tell if a piece is fact-checked, if there's not a byline on it and it's not from a publication that you have heard has fact-checking, it's kind of hard to tell, actually.
1: We all wish that we were keeping a skeptical eyeball out all the time to catch the smallest mistake. And many people I know, I often describe myself as a skeptical reader. But a lot of us are just scrolling through our phones and not really reading very closely. What kind of tactics do you advise for people reading the media today? What do you think they should look for when reading a piece to see if it's reliable?
2: I mean, one, so many times we're reading a headline on Twitter or Facebook and we just react, you know, it makes us angry or it makes us happy and we just push like or push retweet or whatever. Uh, and I think that one thing that can help, uh, it not, you know, that might not be a right a accurate story. One read, read the damn thing. You know, um, this is like every journalist, you know, wish because we always get comments back to us on our own stories too, where people say, well, I don't think this and that's like, well, you obviously didn't read the story because that was a point I made in the story. So read the story. If you're going to be sharing the story, uh, to the people that follow you, uh, read it, make sure you actually read it and know what it's about. Um, maybe just take a pause before you retweet uh, or, you know, press like or whatever on Facebook or whatever social media you're on. And just think for a minute, you know, why am I reacting to this? How do I, where, what is the outlet that this is coming from? Is this the New York Times, which of course they get some things wrong too. Um, but is it the New York Times or is it some publication that I've never heard of before? And if it's the latter, maybe take a chance, like a few seconds to look up what that publication is. Maybe it's actually a satirical news site, which You know, we have The Onion, of course, which everyone knows and loves, but there are more and more satirical news sites that are actually trying to not just do good satire, but specifically trying to rile people up and get them to spread these kinds of stories um, and react to them. So maybe look it up and see what the outlet is. See if it's something that you trust. Just ask yourself, why do I trust this? Why should I share this with the people that are following me or that I'm friends with on social media?
1: You actually mentioned that you have a story of a time when you yourself, the veteran fact checker, got it wrong. Yeah, Can you yeah. share that with
2: us? Yeah, this is one that probably had minimum consequences, but it's still really embarrassing. But uh, a few years ago, I was on Twitter. And, you know, I, was, I think it was in the morning. I was like drinking my tea, and I saw this post, this sort of float by, um, that was – it said something like, it was from an outlet that was a science-related outlet, okay? So that was my first thing. I just automatically trusted this, even though maybe I shouldn't have. Um, but it, it said something like, look at this adorable newborn polar bear. And it was this photo of this really cute polar bear with like gleaming white fur and big brown eyes and long lashes. And I, my immediate reaction was like, yeah, that is really cute. Everyone should see this immediately. And I just clicked retweet. And within seconds, one of my followers wrote back to me on Twitter and said, hey, Brooke, that's not a newborn polar bear. That's a stuffed animal. And, I was, and he was right. And I was so embarrassed. And I looked more closely. It was one of those stuffed animals that are sort of hyper-realistic stuffed animals. So it didn't look like a stereotypical teddy bear um, but it was not a newborn polar bear. And then he proceeded to send me photos of what an actual newborn polar bear looks like. And of course, I mean, when mammals are born, they're like slimy and pink and their eyes are like all puffy and closed. And they kind of look like a giant pink, you know, newborn mouse, for example. And that's what this looked like. And, and I was like, of course, that's what a newborn polar bear looks like. Of course, it doesn't have gleaming white fur and big brown eyes and all this stuff. And I felt really embarrassed. And of course, I was embarrassed. Um, I, that, I don't think that person might not even follow me anymore. I'm not sure. Um, whoever saw that probably was like, wow, she has some interesting judgment there. And the, the outlet that originally posted it too, is really embarrassed because they were tagged in all these things. So that's, you know, the consequences of that are just that I was embarrassed. And a few people probably were like, well, she didn't read that very carefully. Uh, but there are other times, of course, that people retweet things that have far worse consequences. So it's an important reminder for me, maybe don't retweet the cute picture, Uh, just give it a beat before I decide to retweet these things.
1: I... I was laughing as silently
2: as I could over here. I'm sorry, that's really funny. It's pretty embarrassing. And now you all know it. Um, it's probably somewhere in my Twitter feed from several years ago. Oh, and maybe I deleted it. Probably I didn't. Because I, I think I just, I think I ended up retweeting the actual pictures and saying, just kidding, this is what it really looks like.
1: But this is kind of a good uh, a good metric, you know, like every time you look at a tweet and go, oh, I'm going to retweet this, look look at it hard and say, is this a stuffed polar bear? <laughs>
2: exactly, exactly. Yeah.
1: Now, your fact-checking book is very much about fact-checking. It's kind of a guide for professionals. But I actually, I personally learned a huge amount um, from this book. And I think there's a lot that regular non-fact-checking readers can take away, too. Why do you think uh, people who don't do journalism should read a book on fact-checking?
2: One, I think it helps them sort of peek into how (laughs) sort of like the process of journalism and see how it's actually done Um, get them thinking more about how hard it is actually to do research and to find good sources uh, and get a sense of how, you know, whether or not to trust, trust certain outlets, uh, whether to question or not books that they're reading. Um, There's a whole section in there on how to, you know, judge whether a book is a good source. Um, For example, actually looking up the author and seeing if they have any affiliations uh, that might, Get, you know give them incentive to write a book that is slanted and maybe missing a lot of information um, looking up the sources in the back of the book to see if they're good sources or if they're quoting some things that don't seem like the best primary sources for example um, but more generally I think that I hope that it gets people thinking about the fact that even if you're not a journalist if you're on so any form of social media you are a publisher at this point even if you're so if you're on social media and you are posting status updates, or you are posting articles with commentary on them, you are writing and you are publishing. But even if you're only lurking on social media, and all you're doing is liking things, um, maybe occasionally commenting on something someone else wrote, um, retweeting things and not doing a whole lot of original uh, commenting, you're still publishing because every time you like a story, or retweet it, you are widening widening the audience for it. You're creating all the people that follow you or that you're friends with, uh, who haven't seen that story, now have the opportunity to see that story. And by you publishing it in that way, you're sort of giving it a stamp of approval, saying, this is interesting, I think you should read this. Um, So in a sense, I mean, I don't think my book or anyone else doing any fact-checking is going to necessarily change the ecosystem that we exist in in social media, but... Uh, Hopefully it gets us all thinking, you know, should we be reposting this particular story? What is it about this that we think is important to share? Why do we trust it? Uh, And taking that pause I was talking about earlier before we do that.
1: Asking the, is this a stuffed polar bear question? Exactly. Well, Brooke, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: If you would like to learn more about Brooke Borrell and her new book, The Chicago Guide to Fact-Checking, we've linked the book at scienceforthepeople.ca. And as this conversation we've just had can attest, it is a fascinating book. I think everyone should check it out. It will shed a whole new light on what you read. Next up, we'll hear from another veteran fact-checker, Michelle Soraka, about life as a fact-checker and what it takes to make sure that you, yes you, can trust what you read, listen to, and watch.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking find out where science for the people airs near you or to listen to past episodes check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca you'll also find links to support us at patreon to connect with us on facebook and twitter and to subscribe to the podcast in itunes and now back to the show
1: welcome back i'm bethany brookshire a writer at science news and society for science in the public When I first started looking into fact-checking for this episode, I wanted to speak to working fact-checkers, but I quickly ran into a problem. Fact-checkers are hard to find. As Brooke Borrell noted previously, many times the fact-checker doesn't get a byline or a credit for the story they work on. Sometimes you might see them labeled as researchers, but often they don't receive a billing at all. But then I was giving a new podcast a try, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. There are credits at the end of the podcast, and my ears perked up when I heard the phrase, our fact checker is Michelle Soraka. I was thrilled to find out he gave a byline to the fact checker, and I immediately decided I wanted to hear about her job. Michelle Soraka is a writer, researcher, and veteran fact checker who has checked the facts for pieces at The Atlantic, Retro Report, and Radio Lab, among many others, on topics from the financial crisis to climate change. You might have heard her name if you listened to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Michelle, thank you so much for being here with us.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: When we spoke with Brooke Burrell about the basics of fact-checking, she mentioned that many people learn the tricks on the job. How did you learn how to check facts?
4: Well, as, as she said, I, I also learned it on the job. Um, each publication that you work for generally has um, their guidelines that they share with you and what's acceptable sourcing, what's what's not, Um and they kind of walk you through it, and, and and so places like Vanity Fair, The Atlantic, other places like they have guidelines, and they and they do train you.
1: And you're a writer, but you do a lot of fact checking. Yeah. Why do you like it?
4: Um, it's just it's fun. It's different every day. You're kind of part of a team um, working behind the scenes to you know ensure the accuracy of these articles ensure that information is being presented in a fair and balanced way. Um, You know, just making sure that important nuggets aren't being left out and just, just, I, I think you help in keeping the integrity of, of the story of, of the publication. And, and like I said, it's just very fun because you're always working on something different. I mean, from, like like you said, climate change to financial crisis, who have done celebrity profiles. I've worked on um, really any topic under the sun.
1: So I've been on the receiving end of fact checks because I'm a writer. um, And we're all a team, but you do have to deliver bad news sometimes. (laughs) How do you do that?
4: Um, Well, with with every writer is different. Some writers are very gracious and um, excited to have you working with them and verifying things. And they know that you're you know helping in in some ways maybe saving them from an embarrassing mistake like you said the fact checker's name is rarely if ever actually on the piece but the writer's name is on the piece so obviously when there's a mistake made in the public they're the ones that get blamed for it Um, so every writer is different and when you um, when you start working with them if you work with writers you know every month or every few months you you develop a you know relationship others they can be a little prickly sometimes and don't want you to push back but you just have to kind of i, I joke that sometimes i'm either that the fact checkers is either the uh the writer's best friend or worst enemy depending on the writer <laughs> um in the end most writers love what you've done because they realize you know you've saved them but uh You just, you kind of have to grow a thick skin and, and realize that they've been working on these stories for sometimes a year or two years. And I, you know, I only get the story for maybe two weeks to a month and a half. Um, So clearly I'm not going to know every detail under the sun, but I'm going to do my best to pick out the most important points. And anything I'm not sure about, I'm going to ask questions.
1: You mentioned that you only get a story, writers may work on them for months, but you only Mm -hmm. get a story for a couple of weeks to maybe a month. Can you take us through what exactly you do when you fact check a piece? What kind of steps do you follow? Mm
4: -hmm. Um, First thing I do when I get the piece, obviously, I read through it just with no pen or markers or highlighters. I just read through it front to back. Um, to get a sense of the story and you know, just try to get a basic understanding of, of the information in the story. And then I'll go through it again with my highlighter and my red pen. And the highlighter, I'm usually highlighting anything that's a fact, from proper names to dates to quotes um, to, you know, studies that they're quoting from. So that's what I'm doing with my highlighter. With my red pen, I'm underlining things that I think are like particularly um, important to make sure we have solid sourcing on. So whether it's um, an accusation about somebody or something, um, a hard and fast fact or something like, this is the only time, dot, 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 or this was the first time ever those kinds of of qualification you know qualifiers, you want to make sure they're solid because so often they're not necessarily the first or the only, Or so you want to be careful for those, so yeah, I go through with my red pen and just kind of highlight all of that stuff and then and then i I contact the writers, ask them for their backup. Um, some writers are great and have really solid sourcing and they have annotated. Versions of the article and they'll send it to you and each fact is, you know, um, there's a footnote and sourcing. Some writers will send you a box of research and you're kind of like, okay, where do I start? It's kind of like, you know, finding a needle in a haystack. But um, yeah, then you just start going through it. And at first, it can seem a little overwhelming, but usually... You start getting a grasp of the, the backup and, and it, it's kind of like putting a puzzle together and you slowly start solving it and, you know, there's always a few pieces missing and either you call the, call the writer and follow up with them or you go to the sources. So if there's some fact that I just can't figure out and it's about, I don't know, what the hottest, uh, summer on record was. So I, look up what organizations track this, and then I'd call them and ask them. And this is
1: for a a written piece, but -hmm. you've also done fact-checking for video and podcasts. Are there any differences? Um,
4: There's not too many differences. I mean, they both have a script, so you're still doing the same basic process. Um, With videos, the only thing is if they're using um, archival footage, you want to make sure that... um, it's being presented, well, with any material, you want to make sure it's being presented in context, contextually it's correct. Um, and you also want to make sure if you're quoting somebody from the past, that they haven't maybe changed their views completely, or if they have, you want to somehow note that in the script. Um, i trying to think if there's anything
1: else. Do you have to go through footage and, you know, say, oh, that, that angle on that footage of a sheep hides something
4: important? Um, I haven't had to do that. No. Um, I'll go through, um, interview transcripts from, you know, the video interview transcripts. And sometimes I'll watch the actual video too, and just make sure we're not, um, cutting and pasting together sections of the interview and leaving out important bits from the middle to make sure that we're not changing the meaning of their quote or leaving out important information. So that can be the difficult part because sometimes, you know, if you're a writer, you're starting out with a story and you have a certain point of view, obviously the information you get is going to, you know, either is either in agreement with that point of view or might not. And sometimes I think writers might get too hung up on what they want to say instead of what the information is actually telling them. So just trying to be um, fair and, and uh, you know, conscientious towards that.
1: And you fact-checked for science and non-science topics, but you don't actually have a science background. Are there any challenges associated with checking
4: science stuff? There, there are. I haven't checked too many, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not fact checking pieces for science journals and, um, medical journals and things like that, but sometimes I'm fact checking stories that are about medical procedures or, or science. And it's just a matter of, um, reading the original primary sources as best I can. And if I'm not sure, because sometimes we're taking, you know, scientific language and kind of, I don't want to say dumbing it down, but just making it more accessible to to the average reader. So in doing that, I want to make sure we're not oversimplifying it or leaving something out. And sometimes I'll just go right to the source and say, hey... You know, is this phrasing accurate? Does this does this make sense? And I'll just go to the sources and check with them. I, being a fact checker, you have to you have to be comfortable with with admitting you don't necessarily understand every part of of every story. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on certain things. And so sometimes I'm reading it, and I am I think it makes sense. I've read the journal articles, I've read, you know, all of these other backup sources, and it seems right. But sometimes I just want an expert to tell me, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Yep, that sounds good. Or no, you might want to change this word, just to be sure. Do
1: you ever have to kind of redo math behind someone to make sure the math is right?
4: Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, yep. and 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 again, sometimes I'm not sure how, how the writer got a certain percentage or a certain figure and I and I'll just like ask, can you walk me through this? I'm not I'm not understanding how you got that. And again, like I said, most writers are really gracious and, and willing to do that. They know how important it is, especially in this day and age, like nobody wants a, a mistake in their article.
1: And one of the issues with science is, you know, if you fact check history, at least everything in history has already happened. Mm. But science is kind of an ever changing field, things have happened, but things rarely stay the same. How do you take that into account when you're fact checking a piece?
4: Again, it's, it's kind of what I was saying about when, when writers say the first, the only, always, never, those words, um, you want to, we just, or I'm just careful with those and saying in being specific in this study, it showed you know dot 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 in this example and in, in you know these uh, these researchers have found so not you know it, it it might be a fact stating what they came up with but it might it might not be a hard and fast fact for other researchers other researchers have come up with an opposite conclusion oftentimes will include that you know you know the majority of studies have said. Or the majority of researchers agree on this, but there is this other side you know uh, study that that challenges this this finding so we try again you're just trying to include both sides, if, if it is something that's uh, in, in, in question.
1: What about cases such as, for example, climate change, where there are technically two sides, but mm-hmm. one of them is wrong?
4: Right. <laughs> um, I think in, with climate change, I, again, the stories I've worked on, I mean, the majority of scientists acknowledge that climate change is real, is happening. So I would say we might not give as much, again, depending on the publication and depending what they're working towards, um, they might not give as much uh, space to the other side.
1: With the advent of the internet and with problems with budgeting and journalism, there's a lot of places now that don't have fact checkers. And we're still getting exposed to more and more articles and videos and audio and memes via Mm -hmm. social media every single day. Most of us. We'll never know whether a piece was fact-checked or not. What should we keep our eyes open for as we read?
4: Well, I would say as you're reading a story, what are the sources? Uh, uh, most news articles are going to say, according to you know this you know um, conservative-leaning think tank, and this study that they published last fall said you know, whatever the fact is, or according to... It's just that they're actually citing who their sources are, what their sources are. Is it a government study? Is it is it the former Secretary of State? Is it um, a, a congressional staffer? Is it a scientist with such and such university? Like what the sources... Most articles are going to say what, who and what the sources are. So I would say look for that, because then they're actually giving another... You know, they're giving... They're telling you where they found their facts. Um, I would say in a piece where there's a lot of blind sources, sources who aren't willing to go on the record, that doesn't mean they're not accurate, but that's where things can get a little murky. Um, You're still verifying it, but, but these sources aren't on the record and you don't necessarily know who they are.
1: Michelle? Thank you so much for sharing your hard-won fact-checking wisdom. We've linked two pieces that Michelle has fact-checked at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, and just in time for the U.S. election, we are speaking with fact-checker and writer Dave Levitan about fact-checking the science statements coming out of candidates' mouths.
0: Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca.
1: Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm here with Dave Levitan a science journalist who has written for factcheck.org, Scientific American, Discover, and Slate, among others. He's currently working on a book, Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent, and Utterly Mangle Science, due out in 2017. Dave, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Right now, the United States media is rather fixated on a current presidential race. Uh With each debate, there have been live fact checks that are running on a lot of the sites. And it seems that there's been something of an explosion of fact checking for politics. But I found out recently that media outlets have not actually always fact checked politicians. Can you give us a brief background of fact checking in politics?
3: Sure. So... Uh, For a while, I mean, media outlets, if there was something egregious might have covered, you know, this was not actually true kind of fact checking. But it was only in the early 2000s that uh, sort of dedicated fact checking arose for political campaigns and just politicians in general. Uh, Factcheck.org, where I worked for a little while. Uh, was the first. They launched, I think it was 2003. I was not there back then, but they launched then. Uh, and after them, a few others followed. The famous ones are PolitiFact, uh, the Washington Post fact checker as well. And these days, a whole lot of outlets, uh, do their own sort of fact checking. It's not necessarily a dedicated thing the way that those sites do. Uh, but, you know, the New York Times does it a lot. Uh, some of the newer outlets like, uh, Vox or, um, 538, do a lot of coverage that basically amounts to fact-checking. Of course, that's amplified this year because one of the candidates seems to get so many facts wrong every single time he opens his mouth. But even before that, there was definitely sort of a, an uptick in the desire to basically help the public understand what's true and what's not coming from politicians' mouths, When where before there was really not that much of a check on it.
1: And why has fact checking been really booming lately? We've noticed it a lot with the current presidential election, but it's actually been booming in general. Why is that?
3: I would certainly argue that part of it has to do with the specific candidate uh, involved right now. Uh, but even before Trump, uh, there was certainly some more interest in fact checking. I think it, it maybe was just that, I mean, you know, with, with the rise of, of very fast responding internet, uh, availability, <laughs> uh, it was a lot easier to get a post up quickly, say, that, that could just tell someone, you know, that speech that this politician just gave, it was full of lies or just, you know, lies is a tough word, I guess, but it was full of things that are not necessarily 100% true. Uh, so I, I think that, it was just a, the availability of the medium to do it quickly. When you when all you had was a daily newspaper, it was a lot harder to to check every single little fact that appeared in a politician's speech or, or even in, you know, like a committee hearing or any any sort of, you know, governmental operation.
1: You've noted on your site, and also in preparation for your book, that there are a few main ways that politicians might mess up when talking about science. What are some of those ways?
3: Sure. So uh, the book actually has uh, as as many as 12, I believe, or maybe even 13 if you include one in the conclusion, uh, different ways that politicians get science wrong. Um, Some of them will sound familiar, uh, things like the cherry pick. Uh, Cherry picking data is something that um, has been discussed quite a lot. Some others I sort of made up. Um, There's one I like to call uh, the blame the blogger, which basically is a technique that a lot of politicians use where they, they will say something that is anywhere from just mildly incorrect to outlandishly crazy. Uh, but they have, they have a source for it. The source is some site on the internet, essentially. Uh, that, of course, doesn't make it true. As most rational people know, you can find a lot of things that are not true on the internet. But it's sort of a, a convenient cover. So there have been some really sort of funny examples, or some not so funny, uh, of people citing a report or blog post or something that they say supports their their conclusion uh, this happens a lot with climate change so for example um people like to talk about uh the the consensus uh surrounding climate change the 97% is the commonly cited uh, number of scientists who agree that humans are causing the, the the bulk of climate change um there were some examples of people citing um a blog post that found it was only 43%, which obviously is a huge difference. If only 43% of scientists agree on climate change, then the whole conversation changes. And yes, there was a source for this. They they did have some cover for it, which I think is sort of the point. It was a completely ridiculous analysis that some bloggers had done, and these were bloggers without any apparent expertise in climate science or in statistics or anything else that one might need to to actually accurately discuss this sort of thing. But when it's online, it's true. So that's sort of one of the, the primary ways. Um, would you like one more example real quick? Sure. Okay. Um,
1: something to another- cover the whole as a blogger, you know, I'm mildly offended.
3: <laughs> yes. I, well, it's certainly not all bloggers, but there are bloggers <laughs> out there who, who maybe take some liberties with some of the science or some of the data. Um, another one, um, uh, let's see. So there's a one called that I called the blind eye to follow up, which is probably somewhat self-explanatory. Um, this involves basically picking and choosing which study you find most useful and ignoring the studies that came after it. So obviously science is ever evolving. I mean, we we only really learn things when we've sort of added data upon data, study upon study, and we learn things over years and decades and centuries. But often politicians will find a particular result that supports whatever uh, ideology or particular law they're in favor of or against that, and they will use that, even though they probably know, I would guess, often, uh, that there are studies that came after that, which may be found the opposite, or at least added some nuance to it. Um, so that there, an example of that is with... Um, with GMOs and uh, genetically modified organisms, genetically modified food. Recently, the uh, so-called frankenfish, a genetically modified salmon, was approved uh, in the U.S. Uh, And a a collection of politicians, actually on both sides in this case, um, started citing some studies, or lack of studies, really, saying that we haven't studied this fish, we don't know if the nutrition is the same, we don't know if it's dangerous. Uh, Basically citing the state of the of GMO science maybe 20 years ago. The fact is, we've studied that fish and GMOs in general quite extensively. And we do know very clearly what is in that fish and that it is essentially the same except it grows faster. That's the entire point. And there have been a lot of studies on this. But of course, if your ideological position is to not approve of this, which in this case, these were Alaskan politicians. So they were in favor of uh, protecting the, the, the salmon fisheries in their state. And this would threaten that. So you sort of have to look for the, you know, where their ideology lies. And that can help you actually pick and choose sort of where they might have gotten their information and and what information they're leaving out.
1: Now, this year's election has been, shall we say, interesting
3: <laughs> yes.
1: Has it presented any new challenges or opportunities for science fact-checking?
3: I would say – well, so there are a couple answers to that. First of all, in a way, it's easier because the ways that, uh, that Donald Trump gets science wrong are preposterous. They're not hard to debunk he just says things that are just so far from any remote speck of truth or scientific validity that you kind of just have to say, no, that's not right. And you're in a way you're kind of done. Um, so in a way it's easier because, you know, some other politicians who I was covering at fact check, uh, a year or two ago or a year ago, uh, they were much more subtle about the way that, um, they mis- mistook or misrepresented science. Uh, but with the general election yeah so it 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 sort of requires you to just stay vigilant and explain quickly and and simply why no climate change is not a hoax started by the chinese or you know any or vaccines do not cause autism and yes these are complicated topics but they've been covered extensively before there's any number of resources one can point to to help explain those things without having to you know, sort of reinvent the wheel and, and re, relitigate these sorts of things. Um, the, the sort of side note to that that I would add is that it, because of the general insanity of this election, uh, I, I would say that people aren't paying much attention to science. I, I've wrote a few short pieces about this recently, just talking about how when there's so much crazy going on. <laughs> some of the intricacies of science, which are very interesting and very important to actually discuss and get right, those are just so far down the list of concerns to to both, you know, the general news media, to the candidates themselves, to, to voters, that there's a challenge just to, to sort of be heard, I suppose. And that's not to say that, you know, climate change is not an important topic for politicians to discuss. I think it is among the most important topics, and to, they they've discussed it a little bit, but it's it's so not important, you know, in, in the in the main debates between Clinton and Trump, I don't think climate change has come up once, uh, and apparently with the the next debate it, it probably won't again. So, yeah, I think the main problem with fact checking science in this election is that no one's paying attention to science.
1: Now, a lot of people may follow fact checks for debates in real time, because there are several outlets that are doing these fact checks for debates as they occur. But politicians, and especially presidential candidates may make a lot of statements in a day and you and other fact checkers cannot be everywhere. Do you have any guidelines for people who might be seeing statements made by politicians that haven't been been vetted? Is there something they should look out for? Are there ways that people can do their own fact-checking?
3: Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, the very sort of simple answer, and this is probably not – (laughs) <laughs> Not something a lot of people would want to hear, but I would say use Twitter. Uh, twi- follow the main fact-checking organizations on Twitter, and even if they don't necessarily write a new piece every time uh, someone says something ridiculous, they probably have covered it before. So, you know, PolitiFact, Fact Check and The Washington Post in particular, if you sort of are just watching out for how they respond to these everyday events, as you said, there's a lot of events, there's a lot of speeches, a lot of things going on every single day, but because, I mean, there are a limited number of issues, right? I mean, it's not like they're suddenly creating new issues in general or specifically new scientific issues to talk about. So, I mean, maybe it seems like sort of an overly basic response, but just pay attention on, on on Twitter because it's a fast response, right? So if, you can, if PolitiFact sees that someone said something they already covered, they can tweet out that link, which was already done a year ago uh, or five years ago. And you get pretty good information right there.
1: Dave, thank you so much for being with us during what I'm very sure is a very busy time of year.
3: (laughs) Yes, well, thank you for having me on.
1: We've linked to information about Dave Levitan and his book at scienceforthepeople.ca. There, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. You'll also find a link to our Patreon page, where you can support our intrepid little band of podcasters with a monthly donation. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People.
5: Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Whitten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skepchik Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skepchik.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell.